there, there are some fundamental uh, questions that we all ask. Uh, what is the purpose of life? Could be one. Uh, where did the world come from? Why are there so many problems in the world? What is the hope for the world? Where do we go when we die? And when you take these questions, they're not really disconnected. In fact, the answers to them fit together and they construct a story. This has been true for every culture across all of time. In fact, these questions are the type of questions that anthropologists ask when they study human culture. As humans, we're trying to make meaning out of our experience. There's this grasping for something bigger. And because we know, we know on an unconscious level that our little lives, our micro stories, need to be attached to a cosmic story, to a macro story. I can remember uh, the first time I went to New York City. Uh, Jen and I went to New York City. We lived in Boston for a year, so New York City was close. We had never been, and so we made the uh, little journey down uh, to New York. And, you know, we thought we were... Uh, we thought we were cool, so we went to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Never been to an art museum before. And uh, went around, and you saw a lot of the ancient art was kind of the first thing that we looked at. There was ancient Near Eastern art. There was African art. There was Asian art. There was Greco-Roman art. And as we walked around, I noticed that all of these ancient cultures in the world were unique in some ways, while also similar what was unique about them was the art itself, the color, the medium used, the size of it, the detail was all different. But there were some common traits too. No matter the culture, all of them, what was similar is that what was depicted was the divine. It didn't matter what culture it was from. No matter what culture it was, it was representing that there was something going on in their religious system. But now, now we live in a secular age. And really, secularism is just a philosophy that rejects all forms of religious faith, all forms of worship. You can say a lot about it. People really smart talk about it. They talk about where it came from, how it shows up in our everyday life, why it's so appealing to 21st century Westerners. And that could be a fruitful dialogue, yet I don't want to get bogged down in that tonight. Instead, I simply want to ask the question... Is it effective in suppressing religion? Is it effective in answering the big questions about life? See, even if you say that you're not a religious person, and some of you probably do, you still have to answer those questions above. Where'd you come from? Why is the world broken? How's it going to get fixed? What's your purpose? And for most of human history, those questions have given rise to the creation of religions until now. So does that mean that secularists can throw out all forms of religion so that they don't have to answer these basic questions about life in the world? I would suggest to you the answer is no. They answer these questions because they still need to create meaning out of their life. And so the story in a secularist age often becomes the story of the political right or the political left. See, religions used to be the sole source of meaning because they give you some transcendence. They offer these innate questions, these deeply embedded questions. And so when you toss aside religion, you cannot toss aside the need for meaning. 
So instead of choosing religion, many in our secular society choose a political philosophy. Because what politics do is they offer us some sense of a transcendence, some shot at meaning. And so many in Many of the unchurched run to politics for their answers, but they don't even realize that that's what they're doing. But then secularists, they're not the only ones who have been charmed by American politics. The church has too. The church often equates cultural change to their ability to persuade political systems. And then you have evangelicals on the right. They've done this with Republicans. And then the older, more historic denominations in our country that are often referred to as a lump, referred to as the mainline denominations, they've done this with the left, with the Democrats. Because what happens is it's really appealing for the church. They really think that we can persuade political systems to shape public policy. And if we do, then just maybe the kingdom of God has come. We put all of our eggs in the basket of politics. So whether you're unchurched and secular, so you're not a religious person, or even if you are church, you are a religious person, all of us tend to put too many eggs in the political basket. So this is our world. <laughs> and we've got an election coming up in 48 hours. How are we supposed to think about it? How are we supposed to feel about it? How are we supposed to live because of it? Well, politics aren't the envision of the modern era. Jesus had to deal with them. And Jesus, in one of his most famous instances of dealing with politics, did so in Mark chapter 12. So let me read it, starting with verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you're true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. The word of the Lord. So you've got two groups of people who come as one. You've got the Pharisees and the Herodians. Both are Jewish religious leaders. But there's something very different about them. And what's different about them is the way in which they relate to politics. The Pharisees' position towards politics to the Roman government is one of protest. They're going to protest until Rome is out and Judaism is back in. They're principled. They're angry. They're strong-willed. That's the Pharisees. Then you have the Herodians. The Herodians are accommodating. They don't want to lose their influence with Rome. So they will bend their religious convictions, their Jewish religious convictions, to that of Rome to have some influence. But even though they're different in how they relate to government, how they relate to Rome, now they've got a common enemy. His name's Jesus. Jesus threatened both of them because they sensed in him some absolute authority. 
And so they come to him in an attempt to trap him in a question about politics. And they come to him and they essentially ask the question, are you going to vote for Caesar? Now, it's not like they can vote. They're not in a democracy. But it is a question about which side Jesus is on. So they begin to grease Jesus up. Did you catch that? Verse 14, they say, Teacher, we know that you're true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but you truly teach the way of God. Jesus calls their BS there. And he says, why do you put me to the test? Verse 15, he calls them out. But they're really asking, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Which puts Jesus in a place of dilemma. If he says, yes, pay taxes. You are to, give, you are to pay taxes to Caesar. Then he's going to lose his popularity with the Jews. But if he says, no, don't pay taxes to Caesar, he's at risk for being arrested by Rome. So what does Jesus do here? What does he do with this trap? Well, first he says, why do you put me to the test? And then he says, will you give me a denarius? Well, a denarius is just a coin. It's a coin that's worth about 18 cents, maybe a quarter. And he takes the coin from someone else, and then he asks them a question, because Jesus is really good at that. If you ask Jesus a question, he's more, more than likely not going to answer it. He's going to ask you a question in return. And the question he asks is, whose likeness and inscription is on this? Likeness. What's the picture on that coin? Inscription. What are the words on that coin? Well, the picture on the coin is Tiberius Caesar the emperor of Rome. And what the denarius symbolized was what is called the head tax. And the head tax was paid annually. And the head tax was just one denarius. So there's one special tax that every citizen in all of Rome has to pay on an annual basis that equals 18 to 25 cents. It doesn't cost that much. But it is the tax that infuriated Jews perhaps more than any other tax they had to pay, even though it was the one of smallest amount. And it's not because of the amount, it was because of the symbolic nature of it. It's because of Caesar's big fat head is on, that, is on the denarius. And the words on the denarius say this. It says, Caesar, son of God, high priest. Those words written about this Roman emperor made the Jews' blood boil. Just a few years before Jesus is standing there in Mark 12, there was a revolution that occurred. And it occurred under a leader named Judas the Galilean. Now, this isn't Judas Iscariot. This isn't the one who betrayed Jesus in the garden. This is a different dude. Judas the Galilean. And Judas the Galilean called all the Jews to refuse to pay the head tax. Judas the Galilean had an armed band that went into the temple and they removed any semblance of Rome. Judas the Galilean taught on the kingdom of God by saying, we're going to let God be our king and not Caesar. Well, guess what happened to Judas the Galilean? He was arrested and then executed. And so now Jesus has done all those things. Jesus has taught on the kingdom of God. Jesus has cleansed the temple. But Jesus has not yet called all the Jews to not pay the head tax. So there's a lot hanging here in the balance. What is Jesus going to say 
with this coin in his hand. Well, he says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. So here, in Jesus' answer, he concedes that, Jesus, that, that Christians, that God's people, have some responsibility to the state. There is some obligation, but it's not super clearly defined. He just says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Well, what is that? But he makes it very clear that there's a greater obligation to God. So in some ways, Jesus' answer, should we pay this tax to Caesar, is in some ways yes, in other ways no. In some ways, Jesus doesn't say revolt or acquiesce, but in other ways, he says revolt and acquiesce. He does say pay the tax. You've got to give Caesar some measure of allegiance. You're acquiescing. But he says to stop short of full allegiance that God alone has the right to that. That's revolt. But here's where it hits home. Here's where it hits home for us. There's two statements here. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. And for many of us, we just grab one of those and we hold on to it with all our life. Some of us hold on to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. You don't say that. Instead, you really say, give to the right what is the rights. Give to the left what is the lefts. And when that happens, you have become a pawn in the system of that political persuasion. Because your imagination has been dominated by their policies. So what happens? We stay glued to the Wall Street Journal and the Fox News on one hand. Or to the New York Times and CNN on the others. But others of us, we don't grab on to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. We grab on to what, give to God what is God's. I mean, we're church people around here, right? We scream from the rooftops. I mean, it's like we're William Wallace. Screaming freedom. But when we do that, we end up fighting the state with the same tools of coercion that they use. We end up measuring our impact by the volume of our voice, by how many people are on our side, by how much change we're able to bring. So it's really strength, power, and money end up being the marks of the kind of revolution that's led by those who just Hold on to that one phrase, give God's with God's. But you know what that sounds like? You know what it sounds like when you use strength, power, and money? It sounds like Caesar. When Jesus says, give to God what is God's, he's referring to a God who's long-suffering, a God who's patient, a God who's merciful, a God who's abounding in steadfast love, a God who's slow to anger. In fact, Jesus is God. And he's a revolutionary, totally different than what we would expect. Think about it. Caesar literally has all the coins in the world. Jesus doesn't even have a quarter. He's got to ask somebody for a quarter. The climax of Caesar's reign are his military victories. The climax of Jesus' reign is his death on a Roman cross. Caesar has to engender fear in people for them to bow down to him. Jesus has people bow down to him freely. 
So do you see the difference? Do you see the difference between the values of the world that we see in Caesar, the values that we even see in these Jewish religious leaders, compared to the values of Jesus? See, the values of the world are comfort and recognition and power and success, and we're all desperate for them. In fact, I think we make all of our decisions based on those values. We run them through this grid. We run them through the grid and we ask these questions. How can I maintain power in my relationships? How can I achieve goals and be considered a success? How can I maximize my comfort? How can I be recognized so I can bask in my own shallow self-glory? Sound like you, sounds like me. These are the values that mask our day-to-day lives, but they're also the ones that mark politics. And every political revolution is really just about reallocating those four values. It's just that one group of people had the recognition, the success, the comfort, and the power, and now a new group does. But then Jesus comes along. And he's got this totally different revolution. He doesn't have any money. He doesn't have power. He doesn't have recognition or success. The pinnacle of his public life is not when he gets elected, but when he is killed. He spent all of his time with the poor, the sick, and the social misfits. You begin to watch Jesus, and you can possibly just construct a figure who's generous, kind, he's selfless, he's a teacher. But that's not going to get you very far. If that's all Jesus was, then all we would have is a model. We just have an example to follow. But we need someone to do more than just set us an example. We need someone to change us on the inside. And that's what Jesus has come to do. He doesn't just want to change your behavior. He wants to change your heart. And your heart is the central control station for your whole life. In order to change your heart, Jesus had to die and Jesus had to raise again. It's his death and his resurrection that break the power of the world's value over us so now we can be sent out into the world. We can begin to make decisions on very different, in very different ways than we did before. We begin to say, I'm going to take this job in order to serve others instead of I'm going to take this job because it's going to increase my comfort, my power, my recognition, and my success. You begin to look. Where are you going to live? You begin to make decisions based on, I'm going to move into this neighborhood in order to be a good neighbor instead of moving into a place that's going to maximize my comfort, my recognition, my power, and my success. And it's Jesus' death that launches this kind of revolution in your individual life. But it's this kind of revolution that's going to be launched into how you view politics, too. That's what the gospel does. It changes us. Wherever you find yourself on the political spectrum, Jesus wants to move that. And so for some of us, we find ourselves on the extremes. We're captivated by politics. Well, in that case, Jesus is going to have a moderating influence on our politics. It doesn't mean that you become a moderate per se, but you become less extreme because you realize how you formally, overly identified with one party over the other. 
you see how Jesus contradicts some of your party's platforms. And you know you've got to submit to him over your ideology. If that's the case, you're also going to see that Jesus changes the way you view your political opponent. You can't see them as an enemy anymore. But you have to become more pragmatic. You've got to be willing to listen. You've got to see where you're missing it. You've got to be more willing to compromise for the common good. See, here's my hope for us come Tuesday. (laughs) Don't let Tuesday ruin your life or make your life. Tuesday should not be the worst day of the year or the best day of the year for you. Because Jesus has risen from the dead. The real victory's already been won. He's alive and well. So brothers and sisters, will you go to bed at a decent hour? Would you spend more time consuming God's word and taking walks, praying about the issues that you're so worried about that you want politics to fix? Instead of consuming the media. And I'm going to see you next Sunday. We're going to gather around right here with the risen Christ and set our hopes on him again. Let's pray. Father, I pray you would help us. <laughs> uh, this just seems so hard in many ways. Lord, we uh, just have a hard time reckoning where we really are or where you want us to be. And so, Lord, would, would, would you uh, change us? Lord, would we be willing, willing to come to you with open hands and allowing you to call the shots for us? And do this work in us tonight. Do this work in us as we live our lives, knowing that you're with us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.